Thank you, Jared. That was a wonderful uh, introduction. Although I'm a little disappointed uh, you missed your opportunity to publicly humiliate me, you know. Uh, the last poem I read uh, in the studio uh, last fall uh, was a poem that I had written uh, as I read, after I read Jared's uh, wonderful book. So I thought it would be apropos, since he introduced me, to pick up and give you that poem tonight for Jared. He's a wonderful poet and a wonderful man. Yeah, I haven't heard MD's serious poetry yet, but I hear you're a serious musician. I'm looking forward to that. No, that's not true. That's not, he lied. The elders lie. MD stands for Yes, I know. I, I'm trying to be polite. <laughs> After all, I'm from out of state. Oh, I should tell you, I've been coming to Colorado since the 60s. I have friends and family here, so I consider myself more or less an adopted Coloradan, but I promise you I'm not going to read you any poems about Colorado. That would be presumptuous. I'm not going to do that. This is called Reading Jared in the Middle of the Night. And the book is uh, The Graves Grow Bigger Between Generations. It's Higginham Hill Books, 2007. If you haven't read it or bought it, and I'm sure you have, do so. It's a wonderful book. Reading Jared in the Middle of the Night. Sure, there's darkness. And because I, too, have gazed more than once at the eyes of dead men and women, and once even of a child, at the hard marbled nothingness of nothing, it would be reasonable to assume the darkness he speaks of is the darkness I am thinking of as page after page turns, pulling me ever deeper down into black sucking currents of everlastingness nothing can escape. Reasonable, sure, but wrong. I am thinking more of the stuff light is made of, like the moon in spring, like the songs of birds back from temperate climates, like even the bitchy rhetoric of crows let out for recess from winter's one-room schoolhouse. Darkness is there, all right, its nasty pincers clicking just outside these pages, and darkness has its charms. But reading Jared in the middle of the night snaps darkness like bone, palms advancing toward the only end that matters this incredible spillage of light. It's for Jared. The way a crow shook down on me, the dust of snow from a hemlock tree, has given my heart a change of mood and saved some part of a day I had rude. Here's a poem for October. It's kind of an ars poetica in a strange way. It's called Epistle in October. I see your names popping up everywhere. Poems in these journals, essays in those, readings here and workshops there. The awards keep coming in like long-delayed flights at O'Hare or Kennedy or Reagan National. Airports you've been flying out of and into so often you're having trouble keeping them straight. I haven't heard from you in a long time. 
Not one call left on my answering machine, not one letter or email, and it's no wonder, given the wonders of Alaska or the Gulf Coast or New England in the fall. On the other hand, I haven't left or sent you one either, and you have every reason to wonder. My time so free, it doesn't seem like freedom. I assure you, it isn't I don't care. And it isn't envy. I celebrate your success, not denigrate it. I admire it, want to copy it, want to write poems as lovely as yours, which are as lovely as the trees in October. Really, it's more like the crows I see today. So deep into October, it's nearly November. I've been sitting here for an hour stirring needles with my feet and counting woodpecker holes lined up vertically in one of the trees. And just now, two of them come flying in low through the pines and light on a thickly needled limb swaying in the wind gusting west across the lake. The crows just sit unmoving and quiet, which, as you know, is uncharacteristic of crows, big black bruisers ready to rumble in any jungle, ready to speak to power of any temporal kind. I don't know why the crows are silent. Maybe they're on the lookout for lunch, just tired or sense a storm on the way, maybe still stunned by lavish October color. Maybe they're fed up with their own language Maybe later they'll have something to say. Don't hold your breath, but maybe I will too. Thank you. Well, it would be very remiss of me. Uh, uh, the book before this one is called The Horse's Name Was Physics. And it's a book that deals with nuclear physics, the development of that, and quantum and all of that, the characters. Uh, but I'm writing. I'm still writing about physics, but in a different way now. I did that. I don't want to do that again. Uh, that's kind of a narrative, dramatic book. And uh, so this poem illustrates the kind of way I'm playing with physics now. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't read it because Jared is sitting there, and he threatened me, you know, to uh, get peanut shells, you know, tipped in steel. So I'm going to read this poem for Jared especially. Uh, and we had a conversation about dogs today too, and. Uh, so this is for Chauncey, too. I think Chauncey would appreciate this. Uh, so physics and dogs, I mean, hell, how can you go wrong, you know? This is called, I'm going to take you to New York. Uh, this, oh, that's easier. I see. Okay. If you notice how many people are wearing glasses in here? <laughs> I'm going to write an ode to glasses. I'm at that point in my life, you know? But they're a pain in the rear end when you're trying to do a reading, you know? Anyway. This is called Rambling in Times Square. This came out of Rambling in Times Square. Is time square-able, relatively speaking? I would love to know what's on the other side of what we know. What, for example, is at the other end of your garden variety black hole? Is travel through one possible? Why does Earth wobble? What happened one nanosecond before the Big Bang? If we could travel faster than the speed of light, what would we see? What is dark matter anyway? Is there in fact a theory of everything, or is it only Einstein's last pipe dream? 
Above all, why on New Year's does the ball drop rather than rise toward the future we're celebrating? Is down up and up down? If you square time, is time timely still? Or, like the female poodle on 42nd and 6th making love to its owner's leg, its X's and Y's scrambled, its tenses tense less. Is time not time? And why do female poodles think top is bottom, bottom top? Why do they make love to legs at all? Thank you. I think that's a deeply philosophical poem myself. This is a chapbook um, that was published in uh, Russia. Uh, I went, made two trips to Russia. Tula, or Tulu, is the uh, sister city of Albany, New York. And back in the 90s, through my college, where I was teaching at the time, I uh, made two trips over there. And I met this wonderful man, and uh, Michael Kudrashov. Uh, and he heard me, I let him read or something, he, a couple of the poems that I had been writing during my trip, and he immediately, he was the editor of a press, and he wanted to do a chapbook, or they call it a book, it's really a chapbook. So this whole sequence of poems evolved, and uh, this came out in a bilingual edition in Tula, Russia. Um, so, I mean, I have about 250 of them, they sit there, but, you know, it's nice. Um, <laughs> it's called So Many Bones, Poems of Russia, uh, or Stihi o Rosia, which is the title, in case any of you ever run into it in some dusty bookshop somewhere. Anyway, uh, recently, just a couple of months ago, I received uh, an email from a young man, Serge Gravenko. And uh, Serge uh, was my, a student there at the time, and he was my translator. He is now in China. He married a Chinese woman, and they have a child. So he's, studied, you know, he's fluent in Chinese. And uh, that's where he is. And he sent me an email recently, we're still in touch, informing me that uh, Michael had died. And uh, that really, you know, Michael was, uh, he was an elegant man. I really, I liked him. It was a deep friendship, even though we never saw each other but those two or four weeks or whatever I was in Russia. So I wrote a very simple elegy for him. And uh, I'd like to read that to you tonight. This is kind of a new poem. And uh, we'll see how it goes. So this is my elegy for Michael. It's called Elegy for Michael. Walter Cronkite died, and everybody is busy grieving him, and I grieve him too. But on this side of the Atlantic, among all these millions, I am grieving you, my Russian mentor, my Russian friend. News of your death came by way of another Russian friend in China. A decade and a half ago, a student of yours and my translator, who said he'd heard rumors of it from his friends back in Tula. News, sadly, that in your case was not highly exaggerated. Fifteen years is a long time, but the night you and your colleague Sasha and I raised toast after toast to Mother Russia, to America and democracy, and to each other, and then made a mad nighttime 150-mile drive to Moscow and my flight back to America, compresses time to nothing but a moment's blur, and there we are, bouncing along full of friendship and vodka.
So let America grieve for Walter Cronkite and let everybody raise a toast to what a good and great man he was. I will too. But as your family and Russian friends cover your coffin with cold Russian earth and like Tolstoy's grave, cover yours with flowers and personal tokens, I will sit on this side of the Atlantic, vodka in hand, and toast you, my Russian mentor, my friend, my brother. And we will talk, we will talk for a long, long time. That's from Michael. Okay, I'm going to go back to the book, the book. You ever notice that? It becomes the book. In your own, in the empire of your own mind, at least. Uh, I want to read. Uh, that was a kind of elegy, and the next poem is kind of an elegy that I'll read you in a moment about my stepfather, um, who was a Mississippi redneck par excellence. Uh, he was a, truly an American original. His name was Jason Logan, and I want to set that up by reading this to you. I wrote this when I was up in Maine. Maine is a state I love dearly. Spent a lot of time there. It's called, I've never used the word shabby before. I've never used the word shabby in a poem before. But here it is. I'm in Maine and slogging my way around, through, and over the biggest damn bog I've seen so far. And as my feet slide from tufts of wiry grass and sink into winter muck and sweat stick shirt to skin and heart keeps time with the woodpecker hammering away at one of the dead tree trunks like a lunatic carpenter. Shabby is the only word for it. And in fact, I'll go one better and say shabby, scruffy, shoddy, and scurvy. All of which explain Maine in winter and why a man of 65 brought up by savage daddies on the Mississippi Delta loves it so. <laughs> well, Jason, Mr. Jason, oh boy, Mr. Jason. To hear him talk, his daddy spat him out like used tobacco, raised him on God and guns, and taught him the vernacular of pure old Mississippi moonshine. That's the opening poem that sort of gets him in a nutshell. I imagine him, this big, huge, redneck of a man, tough as they come, no nonsense, entering, meeting St. Peter at the pearly gates, and I wondered what would be said. This, I admit, this is just a straight out, as the kids say, fun poem. This is called, Mr. Jason Meets St. Peter at the Pearly Gate. Says St. Peter, the old windbag, to hear you talk, you tried to be both good and sanitary, but figure you were successful at one more than the other. To which he smiles, it being good to remember when he laughs, it's like running your finger along the honed edge of a knife and says, well, stud, it's plumb nice to make your acquaintance too. And I'd be more than a little grateful if you direct me to Mr. John Cat who I'm told is somewhere hereabouts chewing cud and waiting for my arrival so's we can do some coon hunting. Says St. Peter, the old windbag, to hear you talk, except for good ribs and better women, 
the only things worth a damn were your daddy's liquor and hunting. Sinner, you can find him yourself. To which he says, Well then, stud, I reckon I can conjure sass enough for that. You have a good day now, here, and if I don't see you again, to hell with you. Exactly, says St. Peter. Exactly. Um, there's another little poem I want to... I want to read you two more of the uh, music poems. I've got them in sheet here. It's easier to read from. Um, let's see if I can remember. I did this last year, too. Um, one evening, Charlie Parker stood on a country road and like a wolf lifting its muzzle, raised his sacks to the night sky and blew a tune so god almighty hot, the cow to which he played spat out its cud and tore the pasture up, doing the bovine bop. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Oh, that's what kind of crowd you are. Ah, now Bird I know. Lives. Yeah, <laughs> he does. Bird lives. Clint Eastwood said so. It's got to be so. Um, let me get, okay, I want to do it in this order. Um, I wrote this poem in, at the uh, airport in Detroit. Usually flying out here, we, we change in Detroit, which is a really, I love that airport. It's, they've got the trams going along. It's a very lovely airport. And uh, I got thinking about Detroit and all the history of Detroit, particularly the musical history. So that's, this is my homage uh, to Motown. It's called It's Raining in Detroit. It's raining in Detroit, and fog is rolling in, obscuring the view. But in the terminal, it never rains, and Motown never goes off the air. Listen, that's little Stevie Wonder revving up his harmonica, and backing him, those dancing machines, the Jackson Five. And oh, the temptations, how they slide and glide around the carousel, and don't look back. And checking in is Mr. Marvin Gaye wondering what in hell is going on. And then, oh, baby, 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 the supreme, supremely wailing, where did our love go? He went to Georgia, Miss Gladys says, where it might or might not be raining, but summer punches a final boarding pass, and all over Detroit rain is pouring down. In the terminal, though, while his daddy lurks backstage, Mr. Marvin Gaye takes one more bow, insisting the miracles are coming. He knows because he heard it through the grapevine, and the grapevine is never wrong. <laughs> and uh, one more musical poem here. Uh, this is my poem, my po what? post-Katrina poem. I wrote it after Katrina, but it's my Katrina poem. And uh, you'll, re you'll remember this if you saw it. It came out of a, uh, a report in the paper I read and heard about on the news uh, about Fats Domino. So that's what this is really about, which is a wonderful story. It's one of the few really good stories to come out of Katrina. This is called the Fats. I, I spent some time in uh, New Orleans. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, I went down there. My, uh, visit my cousin once. Mostly, I lived in Baton Rouge for a year, so Louisiana has some significance for me. 
This is called The Fat Man Done Gone Missing. We found our thrill on Blueberry Hill. And then Blueberry Hill was underwater and the fat man done gone missing. Last seen slogging in New Orleans. Pianos bobbing like swollen bodies. Trumpets gurgling, guitars flailing away. Soldiers stroll down Bourbon Street, the smoky jazz joints close, the signs proclaim forever gone to higher ground. We flooded heaven with our prayers, and then our prayers were answered. The fat man was lost and then was found, black pea bobbing in a toxic pot. Blueberry Hill will rise again. Yes, we agreed, there is the power of the blues, but the thrill sweet. Jesus, the thrill is gone. From my mother's sleep, I fell into the state and I hunched in its belly till my wet fur froze. Six miles from earth, loosed from its dream of life, I woke to black flack and the nightmare fighters. When I died, they washed me out of the turret with a hose. Why do we call it Agent Orange? This is about my brother. My brother lifts his shirt, shows me his belly, then his thighs, his sides, his legs, exhibits for my enlightenment the spots flaring like the rage necessary to war. Why do we call it Agent Orange? It isn't orange, it's angrier, reddish, like the earth crop dusters spread their deadly chemicals on, each spot similar to the inflammation chiggers cause, but bigger. Cancer, he explains, it's cancer, but if only on the skin, controllable. Once in the blood, you're one dead mother. Jungles are in his eyes as he looks away. He can live with it, he only hopes it will let him go on living. Agent Orange, how he's come to hate the name. How he hates the commercial airline that dropped him off in Saigon high on booze and duty. I hate its name too, and I hate its quiet sniping. I hate the young man's sense of self that put him on that plane, and from there plumb to its line of fire, the slow burning of it. He's uh, got a bad case of Agent Orange. It's, uh, you know, it's okay, he's fighting, but he has to stay on top of it constantly. And talking about hell, um, how many of you are teachers? Or have taught, or you're student? Okay, you'll, you'll appreciate this. We all have memories of a tough teacher. Yeah? And this is a memory of a tough teacher I had. Probably explains why I was such a hard ass. But anyway. This is called Making Up with Milton. I'm sorry it got by me, Mr. Milton, but I certainly didn't get by you when I was 20 and Professor McLean assigned Paradise Lost to my class. Read it, he said, all of it. I never did. The problem was book two. I tried, but I just couldn't put it down. And every time I attempted moving ahead to book three, I kept coming back to it. 
All those devils debating what to do, each hellishly unholy, each darkly adept. There was no debate about the grade for the essay I never did. Pure F. Each phantom page copiously annotated, whole words X'd, corrections in red. Now, here we are, Mr. Milton, me, a mere 65, and you having just turned 400, which I never noticed, not with Lincoln's birthday being touted and Darwin's and Poe's. I'd apologize for such proximity had it been their fault, but it wasn't. How is it mine, missing yours? I apologize anyway. I really do. And sitting here in Terminal D, I point to the capital in the distance, its dome gleaming in the sun, and tell you about the great debates raging within. Then watch you shuffle off, pausing outside the gate to say, good thing you adore pandemonium. <laughs> That's a political poem. That's as close as I get. All right, I have two more poems for you. I want to keep returning to the subject of hell. Somebody read a poem, and uh, I think they mentioned Eden. Well, in one section of this book, uh, which consists of two poems, I had written this poem originally in Maine called Giving It Up in Paradise. Uh, it's Adam, and, Adam is giving a contemporary voice, and it's his view of all the events that occur in Eden. Well, I read it at a, at a reading, and this young woman came running up. And she says, hey, that's not fair. Eve should have her voice. She should have her say. And I thought about that. And I said, okay. And that's what I'm going to read you now. Ladies, here's your chance. This is, you know, males admitting somewhat the truth, whether they like it or not. This is, it's in seven parts, symbolically. And I'm only going to read, and I'll just nod, or just pause, rather, between each section so you know where it breaks off. Okay, this is called Laying It Down in Paradise. Damned old dinosaur that he is, you'd think he'd get tired of bitching all the time, whether it's about God or that real bitch, me. But no, he never does, and on he goes again, obsessing about what he calls paradise and I call pigs on ice. All those days, one boring perfection after another. <laughs> Naturally, he blames me, bellyaching about how I cost him his perpetual non-motion machine, how I talked him into time and space. Yeah, right like he didn't like apples, like he couldn't ever be seduced, in the metaphorical sense I mean. Sex hadn't even occurred to him. <laughs> I admit it had to me, but not because of some dumb snake in an apple tree. Listen, the apples were there for the taking, and I took, the point being, he did too. Satan didn't have to get to him through me. So what does my poor Adam do? Like the gate behind us, he closes up, muttering something or other about redemption. This, after I'm already big in the belly, swollen like a fly with the fruit of his dislocation, meaning he couldn't get it up anymore. Redemption hell. He ought to thank me, or the snake, or Yahweh. 
Yawa, my post-lapsarian ass. The stupid dick, he doesn't see that if we hadn't suckered ourselves into leaving pigs on ice, he never would have suffered the lapse into knowledge necessary to knowing me. So, here we are in this place named Nod, which is perfect. Here he can spend his days calling me a whore, something the more bastardly of the species likely will forever, and telling himself the problem is he never gets enough. Yeah, right. Nod fits him to a T, and I don't mean metaphorically. It is a snake, he imagines, not a turtle or a clam or a jellyfish. Yin and yang, huh? Two sides of one coin, two halves made whole? Sense win. Truth is less complicated. He blames me, curses all like me to come, and all because he isn't ballsy enough to blame God. Not directly, anyhow. Betrayer, he spits, as if I really were made from one of his mythic ribs. Right. Thank you. MD, thank you again. I've really, really enjoyed this. And thank you all for coming. Jared, you and your wife, as usual, wonderful host. Thank you. Chris, my son over there, he's the guy with the white hat. I'm going to embarrass him now. He is getting married Saturday. He's getting married Saturday. This, uh, I'm going to close with a little uh, Ars Poetica. I kind of opened with a poem about art, so I'm going to close with one. Uh, I never thought I would say this, but I remember when I was younger, uh, my father-in-law at that time, you know, he'd be watching golf on television. I said, golf? Why the hell are you watching golf? That's so boring. Well, guess who's watching golf now? <laughs> time moves on. This is called God. Tiger. No, I swear, it's an arts poet. Listen, listen, listen. God, tiger. God, tiger. When you tee off to the thunderous roar of the crowd and that small white ball falls exactly where you wanted it to, all I can manage is, God damn it, why won't my syllables line up like that? Why won't the stress of each I am fall into place like your ball in those little cups? Like you, I chip away, but nothing works. Now, here you are in your green coat and flashing those pearly whites. If it weren't for these black blossoms on the yellow page of a legal pad, tiger, I'd do a Blakeian number on you, then skulk off into the scented forests of the night in my faded jeans and shirt, my not-so-pearly whites glowing dully, and your smile quartered and drawn by what my immortal hands have wrought. Thank you very much.